I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. One year ago today, a lot of the hyperbole around Donald Trump and his supporters being a threat to American democracy stopped being hyperbole. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. In the year since Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building, there have been arrests and inquiries and millions of column inches written about the dark days coming for America. But has anything been done to stop it from happening again? Or to stop something even worse from happening? Polls say both Democrats and Republicans' approval for violence against political opponents is increasing. And really, you don't even need a poll to see that. Just talk to an American from either party. Most of them might not really want to kill one another, but there's no shortage of contempt and talk of secession on either side. But as the Republican assault on democracy continues, it's fair to ask where this all leads. What is the end game? As the populace becomes ever more divided, how bad could it really get? Today's guest will try to help us imagine it. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Stephen Marsh is a reporter and the author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Hey, Stephen. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. I want you to take me back to one year ago today, January 6th. As you were watching what was happening at the Capitol, what was going through your mind? Um, well, uh, you know, I'd been sort of around these people for quite a while by that point, like reporting from gun shows in Tulsa and going and talking to Oath Keepers in various places in Ohio and sort of talking to far right figures of various kinds. And so it didn't really it didn't really come as a surprise to me. Um, neither the event nor the nor the uh, lack of organization of the event. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of like, well, yeah, this is kind of what I expected. And at this point, you are, I guess, putting the finishing touches on this book that's just out now? Um, most of it was written. I mean, I did have to throw out a lot of chapters because they kept happening. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was definitely well into the book, like three years into the book by that point. So, uh, th- I mean, there were a lot of finishing touches because things kept accelerating so much. And, in fact, this, this past year, I think, has been uh, uh, even more it- – it's accelerated much faster than I thought it would from the previous three years. So, yeah, I was, I was getting to the end of it, and then all of a sudden everything changed. Yeah, we're, typical. We're going to talk about exactly how fast it's accelerating in, in just a few minutes. But first, you know, we discussed this in late 2018 when you wrote the original essay for The Walrus. I want to figure out what set you on that path originally. Was it Trump? Was it something before that? Like, where did the sentiment begin? Um, it was when I, I attended the uh, Trump inauguration. 
And um, it became very clear to me in that event. That event was had a very fall of Rome vibe. Like it was, you know, violence on the streets and the police barely able to keep order. And then on the other hand, people giving out free joints and then going and visiting like high level bureaucrats who like had left their institutions, basically had shut down uh, during the uh, from, during the Trump turnover. And, and so it, it, it clearly something was very, very, very wrong with America right then. I sort of said to myself, okay, well, this is this is what I need to look at. This is what is the most important for me to observe and to record. And then so I basically just started crisscrossing America to and talking to all the experts I could about, you know, the immediate future of the United States and what it looked like. What's the consensus, if there is one, about the immediate future of the United States? And here, I know your book takes a longer view, but I'm now talking about, you know, this year, I guess, maybe up to 2024. I don't think there's... A consensus. I mean, I think what I've really done in this book is I've synthesized a lot of things. So I've synthesized like agricultural information and the best agricultural information along with, you know, the dangers to to cities from climate change and the political stuff, like what what trends lead to civil wars historically, and what what, what the inequality situation means, and and put them all together. Um, but you know, the truth is that the way these systems work, it's a complex cascading system. So they all feed into each other, and and, and sort of when one bad thing happens, it can become a loop that feeds into other bad things. And so that's what makes it so unpredictable. That's why you know, the totally unexpected and unimaginable keep happening. And I like, I'm presenting models here and I'm presenting slight projections, but they're not, they're just very, very minor leaps in the future. Uh, because I don't think you really need to predict too much, uh, when it comes to an American civil war. But, you know, the truth is that the system is so destabilized and so chaotic that it could, it, it could turn out in a whole bunch of different ways. Before we get into the ways that it could turn out, maybe for listeners um, who haven't read the original essay and and haven't heard much about the book, because it's a really interesting approach, um, rather than you know diagnosing the problem now, as you mentioned, you're, you're synthesizing scenarios here. How did you approach this essay and this book? It's a work of reported speculative fiction, a thought exercise. Like, how did you define that, and and what was the process? Well, it's speculative nonfiction is what we're calling it. I mean, essentially, uh, you know, I based it on the um, the essay that was turned into the day after, which was written for Congress about what a nuclear attack would look like on a, on Lawrence, Kansas. Like they just, somebody just wrote a piece of fiction that sort of described what a nuclear attack on Lawrence, Kansas would look like. And um, I was just like, well, let's let's do that. Let's say let's take that approach where we'll see like, OK, what happens when a um, sheriff decides to not follow the mandates of the federal government anymore. What actually happens? What happens when a hurricane hits New York? Like what, what, you know, they have incredibly accurate models of this. Like they know to the street, um, what, what, what parts of New York will become uninhabitable. And, and then also like what, what, what would an assassination look like today? Like what are the, what are the, what are the people who know what they're talking about think would happen in that case? Um, as well as like the military people about what the, the, what the nature of an American occupation would look like. So it, it was sort of taking these projections, but then there, there's not a line in the book that isn't backed up by a lot of research. I mean, 200 interviews, um, traveled across America, talked to everyone from either side, Nazis, 
you know, the extreme left, uh, everyone to try and get what, you know, what's happening. So th that was basically the technique of the book. I'm not going to ask you to give away the entire book and we don't have the time for that. But as you look at this book now of the several scenarios that you've kind of explored with research, mm -hmm. which of them can you walk us through? Which of them most worry you, I guess, given events of the past year? Well, I mean, I think they're genuinely all quite likely. I mean, um, Great. you know, I think at some point there there is going to be a scenario where the militias, you know, decide to rally and decide to find a focal point. Um, you know, it, January 6th was one of those points, but it could, there could be a lot of things. You know, I chose a bridge as an example. I mean, there were actually some violence over the Build Back Better bill and uh, about a, about infrastructure. But, you know, the, the point really is that America is very dry tinder. Yeah. And it, all it's going to take is a spark to set it on fire. I mean, that's really the point here. When you talk about those militias, and you mentioned even in uh, your initial answer that, you know, they were so unorganized at the Capitol. And there's that famous photo of, of one of them sitting uh, in one of the representatives' desk with his feet up, kind of having no idea what to do that they'd actually gotten that far. And I guess what I wonder is, we should take this seriously. Obviously, it's a very real threat. On the other hand, it's really hard to picture these guys getting it together to create a serious threat that could start a civil war. Did you think when Donald Trump took an elevator through a crowd of actors that he'd hired to applaud him that it was a serious threat to American democracy? Like, I didn't. I thought it was a joke. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Like, things that begin as jokes turn out to be real. Like that, And, and I mean, and the consequences of them certainly are real. I, these people are very serious. And, you know, I, I would also say that, like, um, one of the blind spots that the liberals have around the far right is that they tend to think of them as like jailhouse Nazis with born to lose tattooed on. I mean, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of really far right people who are highly educated, have law degrees, um, are on school boards, run for office. They are organized. They are not unintelligent. They are preparing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it absolutely needs to be taken with maximum seriousness. I mean, these people want to overthrow democracy and they might well do it. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. I'm glad you mentioned running for office, too, because I was going to ask you, you know, on the one hand, you do have these militia members that, yeah, we probably do uh, on the left stereotype as as losers. But if there's one thing that I think we've seen over the past year, it's the melding of that group with the traditional Republican power structure and and offices as low as like local school boards. And what happens when they do get that critical mass? Like, where is the tipping point, I guess, as you imagine it? Well, a tipping point to what, I guess, is the question. Um, I, I mean, like, you know, there are already, like, the Oath Keepers list was already released, and they had, like, 50 people in very serious positions. I mean, I talked to Michael German, who was an undercover FBI agent with white power movements during the 90s for over a decade. And, you know, he was like, 
the, the first thing that they noticed about me was that I didn't have any tattoos and they loved that. They loved that he didn't have tattoos because then they could put them in they run them for school board and they will run on every level. Like they'll run for dog catcher. They'll run for corner. Like they'll, they will run for every office that you can be elected for in America. And they're very successful. I think you especially see this in state legislatures, but you know, Josh Hawley raised his fist to uh, the, the people rioting in the Senate. I mean, you know, I don't think you really need to look into the dark corners. It's 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 right there in the Senate. Yeah, it, it's the presidency. It's not it's not just dog catcher of a small Pensacola County in Missouri or whatever. Like it's it's right up at the top as well. Let's go back again just to one year ago, you know, in the aftermath of the assault on the Capitol. What did you think might happen? I think a lot of people have realized kind of in retrospect that maybe that was one last real chance to like really confront this problem and it was missed. I certainly expected much more than what we've seen, I guess, a year later. No, I I don't. I I knew that that would not happen. Um, Once you've gone down the road of blaming the parents for the shooting at Newton uh, School, like where all those kids were, like you can overcome reality very easily. No jolt of reality, no short, short, sharp shock is going to resume, is going to lead to sanity being resumed here. Like that's not in the cards. You know, it, they they are totally capable of believing things that are just not true and have no and have no basis in fact. I mean, that's that's just not a problem for them. So I knew immediately that the story would be reconstituted, um, and it happened right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happened like within 24 hours uh, that they were like false flag operations, or it wasn't as bad as we thought. Or uh, I mean, I I honestly didn't expect um, the Republican elite to cave quite as hard as they did because I thought that their, their sense of threat would um, would kind of like, well, they were attacking me. Like we, we need to solve these people. But they, I, I think they actually feel so physically threatened for their safety that they're just on the run. They're just like the Republicans are on the run as much as the Democrats from the violent thugs. Given the threat to safety of politicians, basically at every level, you know, you mentioned state legislatures, they're showing up outside the homes of medical officers of health and that kind of thing. And election officials. And election officials. And what is the end game there? Is it simply to intimidate anybody who doesn't align with them out of holding public office? And I guess what I'm trying to figure out, and and you could take this wherever you want because uh, you're the one who would know, what is the end game in terms of seizing power. You know, we've seen a lot of essays in in advance of the anniversary of the Capitol attack about how America could become an authoritarian state. How does that happen? I'm not sure it's so strategic. Like I, I in my experience anyway, it's not like they have a plan, they have a plan to impose a dictator and like like some far-right coups in other countries. Like I that's not what is at play here. What's at play here is they feel under threat and they're reacting to that threat with violence and they want power and they're willing to get it by any means, whether democratic or not. And they feel that the country is being taken away from them and they need to take it back by any means necessary. It's done out of fear and despair. It's not, I I would not say that it's done out of a conscious plan, right? Like there's no, there's no idea here. Like, well, if we do this, then we're going to, you know, establish a new kind of government. 
Like, that's not what this is about. I mean, largely, I think what this is about is as minority groups rise to prominence, rise to economic equality. And, you know, African-American and Latino rates of poverty are at all-time lows. And that that's feeding the crisis. I mean, it's horrible to say, but that's the reality. Um, like, as these groups become more equal and as America approaches a majority-minority country in 2040, the the overclass, the people who thought that they were the, the whole country, um, are in resistance and are rebelling against it and are filled with loathing and violence. And yet what's fascinating is that's not an American phenomenon. Like, that happens all over the world. Like, it happens in India with, with Hindu-Muslim violence. It happens in Africa. Um, it certainly happens in the Middle East. So, you know, th- this is the um, this is a process that's underway and it's being fed not by conscious political programs, but by more incohate rage. Do you see what I mean? I do. And like the question I always have, and I've asked this to, uh, you know, international affairs, international security people is, is there any way back from the brink? Um, is there any way for for calmer heads to prevail, I guess? You know, I don't think one thing that I'm quite certain of is that it's not going to work itself out. Like it's not going to, we're just stumble into better times or like the sixties are over and then everyone will get sick of it and the seventies will happen. What it's going to require is a really conscious attempt to rethink American government, which of course, as the violence increases and as the window of legitimacy closes becomes more and more difficult every day. So, um, but you know, that's what's required is actually pretty, pretty radical thinking, not necessarily blind hope. But like, of of course, there's solutions. I mean, America is the country of reinvention. And if there's any country that could do it, it would be them. But, you know, it's not going to happen, you know, on the basis of the current Constitution, say, Hmm. which is, you know, they worship as a like as a divine revelation. And of course, it's it's just another document. How far are we from some of the scenarios that you describe in the book, I know they can happen at any time, but you mentioned at the beginning of this talk that uh, a year ago, you would have thought we had a lot more time. How much time have we lost over the past 12 months? Um, I don't know. You know, the, one of the things about the books is because I'm making predictions and I'm using models, I don't want to say, I. it sounds funny to say, but I tried not to speculate at all or to keep the speculation to the absolute minimum. So I don't give any dates for any of this stuff. I don't think anyone knows the time and the place, especially since it's a complex cascading system and things feed into each other. I mean, you know, a hurricane could hit next summer and like devastate New York, creating millions of climate refugees. And that might be it. Or it could just be, uh, you know, an election that just no one believes in, which could easily happen this year. Right. Or it could be the abortion decision. Right. Uh, Which is going to really divide the United States no matter which way it falls. So I don't really like I I don't know how much time we have. I do know which way the trends are pointing, though, and they're not they're not pointing in the right direction. Last question, then, Uh, since your walrus piece, I know the book's not technically about this, but your walrus piece was also about how Canada needs to prepare for a fractured, unstable potential civil war in America. Have we done anything on that front since you wrote the essay? No. Well, you know, the truth is I can't tell because it's the kind of thing that would happen in government without them necessarily bringing it up. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like it's not like the kind of like they may well be preparing. I certainly have heard nothing from my contacts, but that doesn't mean much. I I hope they're preparing. It's also very difficult to know what they should do. I mean, it's not like I I could say, well, they've done this to prepare. Like, you know, how do you prepare for a calamity? 
very, very hard to know. So I think in a way we're preparing by being quiet. Like, I, I mean, I think the last election, which was so boring, like one of the most, even by Canadian standards, <laughs> like just epically bland. And um, that was us rebelling against what's going on in the States. In a sense, it was us saying like, you know what? The world is crazy enough. Let's just not do anything. Right. Like, let's just not let's just stay calm and not let, 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 let's not get let our arguments get out of control and let's not play the rage card and let's not do let's just be stable. So that that I guess would be a preparation. But, you know, very hard to know. Very optimistic on this anniversary of a potential coup. Thank you, as always, <laughs> Stephen. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Stephen Marsh, author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. You can find it now at your favorite bookseller. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime at thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. This podcast is available in every podcast player. When you find it, rate it and review it. And always, if you like it, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.